This is Genesis 2:25 through 3:21. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it, lest you die. The serpent, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his woman, or the man and his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray, and then let's look at this. Father, we thank you for your word um, that comes to us in so many different forms, including these marvelous stories um, are so deep, as we've seen often. Um, so beautiful and point us to this rich, wonderful hope that we have. And so help us to, by the end of our, our time looking at this story, help us to be able to tell the truth a bit more about ourselves and also encounter the truth about who you are um, and your complexity and your power 
in your beauty and your grace and your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to talk about shame today. And I wonder what that word brings up for you. It could be good just to take a second and just sit with it, you know, and just notice where your mind goes or where it tries not to go when you think about the word shame. You know, the obvious examples of secret sins or past mistakes, but also present pain, hurt. And it may not be anything in specific. It may just kind of be this low-grade fear that characterizes the way that you interact with anybody. Um, it could be the most silly, mundane things, like when somebody asks you what your favorite song is, you know, and you're like, um, I, I have a favorite, but I don't want to tell anybody because it's kind of embarrassing, right? Where do you want to go eat? And we know where we want to go, but we don't want to say it because we're not sure what the other person might think. I mean, all of that's an example of, of shame, right? So just notice that this, this story is, you could say, in part a story about shame, about its origin and what it does to us. And also it whispers, and we'll get into how it's undone in us and around us. So three points, the story of shame, the wounded heart of shame, and healing the wounded heart. So point number one, the story of shame. Where, where does shame, where do we see shame show up in the story? I mean, you know, even thinking about that raises this question of, um, you know, is there really a beginning to shame? Is shame just kind of a natural part of our experience as human beings? You know, a secular view of the world, a more naturalistic view might say that shame, or at least shaming others, is kind of part of the process of, of survival, the human jostling process we have to, to kind of gain power over one, uh, one another. It's, it's part of the natural way that we, that we live and the way the, the power is sorted out. That shame in the form of alienation is kind of a, even a helpful measure the community takes to keep people in line. That threat of being kicked out helps people obey the rules, right? Some might point to the positive effects of shame. We do keep the rules, we do stay in line because we don't wanna increase our shame. All of us as parents, if we're honest, have used that, wielded that, Right? With our kids. We may not have said shame on you, but we've implied it. Okay. Now you might be feeling shame about that. Don't worry. We're going to stay here for a little while, but not the whole time. Shame. Right? Maybe shame, you know, can be used in positive ways. Maybe it's not all maladaptive. Maybe it can be adaptive. But then the question is, can shame, in a world of shame, in a world filled with the kind of shame that we experience, can can shame ever produce good people, like beautiful people, wonderful people, people who know how to love? Can shame do that, right? The Bible tells this story of shame. In one sense, the story is pretty darn simple. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, and they become aware and embarrassed of their nakedness, and they cover themselves with fig leaves, right? That's where we see shame. But when you look at the serpent's conversation with Eve, you start to already see a kind of Shame breathed out by this. the serpent in his words, in its deceit. It's almost scornful, isn't it? You will not surely die. You don't. Implying that you don't understand God like you think you do. He doesn't quite relate to you like you think he does. There's a belittlement, a diminishment, a condescension, a kind of scorn that happens in the serpent's word that he's kind of bringing out this, this air of shame upon Adam and Eve as they listen to him. That, that even that the, the origin of shame may be more complex than we, than we realize. 
The first time shame is actually mentioned, it's interesting in the story of scripture. It's, it's scripture emphasizing the absence of it, though, which is something to notice. And in verse 25, 225, Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed. The Bible story of shame begins with the absence of shame. Imagine that. A world without it. And not just any kind of world. The well-ordered world where God is very present, but shame isn't. All right, John Lennon, most of you know who he is, the, the late John Lennon. He was singer, songwriter, member of the Beatles, wrote the song Imagine. Probably heard this song. Right, it's sung every. I didn't realize this I was looking it up, and I thought I'd heard it. It's sung every New Year's Eve, apparently, in New York City on Dick Clark New Year's special, whatever. Since I think nineteen, what is it, nineteen eighty-six? It's kind of like the song of benediction after we celebrate the new year. And he says, "Imagine, right? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try." He goes on, "Imagine nothing to kill or die for, no religion. To imagine all the people living in peace." You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And it's a moving song. It's like this beautiful, simple kind of song, song of longing for unity and peace. But John Lennon never imagines no shame. Maybe he just didn't think about it, but I wonder if he did. And it, maybe it doesn't make sense. There's almost a shaming kind of way about the song, especially if you're religious. Can he, a dreamer, imagine a world with no shame? The Bible says, it, the Bible does. Imagine a world with no shame shame where we stand naked right even that word naked if i say it and look at the kids in here long enough all of them will start to kind of snicker nakedness right it's hard to say that word you are it's hard to say the word a little bit of color coming to your face right because shame is always there but imagine a world without it imagine a world the bible says where shame isn't present I wonder if your heart, even as we just kind of talk around it, that your heart doesn't long for that. And if maybe not for you, then maybe for the people you love, for your children. It's hard to see the people you love be shamed. What if you didn't have to ever see that? What if they never had to suffer that? Don't our hearts long for it? Because deep down we know that shame is not the way that things are so supposed to be. It's not a proper part of the story. Bible affirms that it's not. John Lennon says, imagine a world without hostility, a world at peace. And you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. The Christian story says, imagine living in a world where there is a God, where there are rules, where there are other people, men and women, and the differences are distinct and clear, but they delight in each other's differences. They don't mock them. They don't diminish them. That's the Bible's imagination of a world without shame. I ask you, which one is more dreamy? Which one is more outrageous? Which one is more radical? I think it's the Bibles. Which tells the more captivating story? I think scripture does. All right, so that's the story of shame. Let's look at the heart of shame. Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit and their eyes are opened and they knew that they were naked and they cover themselves with fig leaves. They hide from one another. And when God visits, they hide from him. They're afraid to be seen by one another and by God. And that's a picture of the heart of, of shame, a fear of being known, of being seen. Even deeper than that, it's this despair, you might say, a despair of being truly known and, and ever fully loved. 
right? A perpetual sense within all of us that I'm not okay, that things are not all right. And kids, again, listen up, listen to me, because all of you have experienced this and you will experience it and you won't necessarily know what to call it, but it's shame, right? It's the embarrassment or sadness you feel when your friends laugh at you. You know that feeling. The sadness you feel, or maybe the anger you, the anger you feel when, you're, when people are disappointed in you, teachers or your parents call you out. That's the shame. It's what you feel when people don't invite you to the birthday party, when they don't ask you to play. You may feel sad, you may feel angry, you may feel hurt, but underneath all that, there's a sense of shame. Something wrong with me, why wasn't I included? The conclusion is I must not be okay. And kids, your parents feel that all the time too. I feel it, we all feel it. The humanity feels it all the time. Shame is the result of things we do, but also things done to us. Again, notice in the Genesis account, shame is the result of Adam and Eve's obvious disobedience. They broke God's rule. And so doing, they kind of adopt this shameful role where they become, instead of rulers and beautifiers and cultivators of creation, they become kind of the ruiners of creation. That doesn't feel good. But notice, too, how Adam and Eve are coaxed, tempted, drawn into that sin by the serpent. Eve is a victim of the serpent's deceit before she commits any transgression. Shame is the result of things we do, but also things done to us. And the cumulative effect is that we have this tenuous sense of identity and worth and security. Shame becomes the air that we breathe. Even the word persona, you know, if you look it up, where we get our word personality. Persona is Latin for the word mask. Our way of relating to one another, as we develop as kids and into adulthood, our way of relating to one another, isn't it true that we, we, we adopt a kind of mask, a kind of pattern of relating that's about engaging, but also at the same time about hiding what we don't want people to see. Some of our masks look more confrontational and active and we're go-getters. Others of us wear the mask and we're more withdrawn and people pleasers, peacemakers, whatever it might be. But in both cases, our pattern of relating to others is shaped by these experiences of, of embarrassment or seeing other people embarrassed and these small silent vows we make to never let people see that part of us again because it brings this broken sense of shame. Some of us, it's the chronic experience of our bodies not working like they're created to right? And we feel corrupted and weak. We feel less than others. But it's, I mean, it's, it's all over the place. Brene Brown, if you've read any of her work, you know that she um, is deeply involved in, in the work of shame. And she's a secular author, but she has all sorts of accounts of shame from people she's interviewed for her books. Let me just read a couple and see which one resonates with you. One person, I'm 41 and I just went back to school to get my degree. Half the time, I don't know what they're talking about. I just sit there and I nod my head like an idiot. I feel like a phony. I'm not smart enough to be here. When these feelings come over me, I wanna just slip away. Really, just slip out of the back and never come back. I constantly feel judged as a mother, like nothing I do is right or good enough. The worst is when other mothers put you down. One disapproving look from another mother can cut me to the core. I don't tell anyone the things I've gone through. I don't want them to feel sorry for me or think differently about me. It's easier to keep my past to myself. Just thinking about being blamed or judged for my past causes me to lose my breath. 
Which, which of those hits with you? Which resonates? Shame, it drives so much of our lives. And just like Adam and Eve, we're always trying to manage it. We're always trying to cover it. Something like a fig leaf. Something not durable enough, not effective enough. Brene Brown says, she notes how, how our obsession with superficiality, our compulsive kind of behaviors, are often a way to cover shame. We spend, she says, an extraordinary amount of time and energy tackling surface issues, which rarely, rarely results in meaningful, lasting change. When we dig past the surface, we find that shame is often what drives us to hate our bodies, fear rejection, stop taking risks, hide the experiences and parts of our lives that we fear others might judge. And Brene Brown is right, at least about me. There's this pernicious rumor going around that, you know, if, if I seem new to some of you, if you're visiting, I've been gone for three months on sabbatical, but there's this pernicious rumor about my sabbatical that it's been a swole-batical. And if you're, look, if you're laughing or smiling, then I know you're part of this. Yeah, that's a great question, Oliver. Let me t so a swole-batical apparently is where you go on sabbatical and you go to the Y and you start lifting some weights and you gain some muscle tissue, and now it's a swole-batical. Okay, but Brene Brown raises the question, doesn't she? And you can, I mean, don't ask me right after, but you can ask me at some point, what, what is going on there? What am I compensating for? What am I covering up? What deeper issue does the extra layers of muscle tissue or whatever it might be for you, what is it covering? You probably have thoughts on it. I know there's people who know me do. They haven't told me yet graciously. But I'm right there with you. What are we all covering up? You know, if you want to find your shame, look at, look at the superficiality. Look at the compulsive behaviors. Just do things every day without thinking. Eating, exercising, whatever it might be. Scrolling. What are you escaping from? What are you covering up? But also look at your ambition. The original 1976 Rocky movie, right? Not, not Rocky, not so, you know, the not sly when he was more plastic, but when he was more natural. The first movie, he is this no-name fighter slash loan shark collector, and he gets this random chance to, to duke it out with Creed, right, who is the heavyweight champion. And he's talking to Adrian, his girlfriend at the time. He's been training, and he's discouraged, and he says, I can't, and I'm, I'm not, if I slip into a, Salone, Salone impression, just forgive me. I'm going to try not to, but because I can't do it well, but oh, it's tempting. He says, I can't do it. I can't beat him. And Adrian says, and this is Adrian, you work so hard. You work so hard. Rocky says, that don't matter because I was a nobody before. Adrian says, as only Adrian can, don't say that. Okay. Rocky says, oh, come on, Adrian, it's true. I was nobody, but that don't matter either, you know? Because I was thinking it really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens up my head either, because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever, gonna, nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed, and if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood, right? I want to go the distance. What's driving him to train and train and train and train? It's to prove that he's not a bum. That's what some of you are trying to prove, one part of your life or another. It's what I'm trying to prove in one part, likely, 
I'm not a bum. I'm somebody. Look where you make comparisons. Where are you constantly comparing yourself to others? Where are you overly critical? Probably protecting something, right? Look at what you hide, of course. Look at what you hide, because that's all what it's all about in the end. Your fear, your anxiety, what areas of your life do you prefer that no one see, no one explore? And not just secret sins or addictions or habits. So I just finished counseling school, and we record every sermon. And one of the things I hate doing the most, that's probably not exactly true, because there's probably things I hate more. But I do not like to watch myself on video or hear my, my voice recorded. And the reason is, so like in counseling school, we often had to watch, you know, recorded sessions and we'd have to go over them after, you know, and you're watching and you, you want to believe you're like really good. And even the, 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 the sessions, the interactions you thought were so powerful, when you go back and watch it, what you begin to notice is how ordinary and human and silly and you fumble over your words, and you're picking your nose, and you're scratching your beard, and you're fiddling with your fingers, and by the end of it, your whole fantasy about who you are is torn away completely, and I'd much prefer to live in the fantasy world, right? I'm avoiding the reality about myself, and with that comes a bit of shame. Oh, I'm not okay. I'm not quite what I think I am. Look at where you hide, right? Shame is like this deep heart wound, always there, always aching, and the result, that the, 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 the tr most, probably the most, the, the most tragic thing about it is how it disconnects us from everybody and everything around us. Because when you're living with such a wound, you can't. Like you can't delight and enjoy and even truly love something if you're hurting all the time. And that's what shame does to us. We lose the sight of the mystery and wonder of our children because we're plagued with shame about not being good enough parents. We lose sight of the gift of relationships because every interaction feels like a trial to us. Are we going to be exposed? Will they see things that I don't want them to see? We can't give thanks when good things do happen. We can't experience that joy and rest of gratitude because it just raises the bar a little bit more. I mean, even with the stinking Amazon gift card, do y'all experience this? Where it's like, now I've got to figure out what to do with it so I don't feel bad after I spend it that I spend it on something stupid. Okay, I'm the only one that experiences that. Well, come up with, don't leave me out to dry. Like, come up with your own thing. Help me out. Okay, in small and big ways, this is what happens. It kind of always comes back to us, right? The wounded heart of shame turns all the color of life to gray. And that's what we see the serpent doing with Eve, is, is infusing this doubt and uncertainty God isn't who you really think he is, and you need to be suspicious of him, and you know, you may not be as important to God as you think either, because he really just wants to keep you in your place. The life of color becomes a life of, of gray, and it saps us of our joy. And so what's the solution? How do we heal the wounded heart? Well, shame is, an, is a feeling, an emotion, an experience we have, and like any strong feeling, you need to listen to it first. Right? It's so easy to try to turn it off or drown it out or deny it or whatever it might be. But shame is like a fire alarm going off in our hearts. It's saying wrong, corrupted, not okay. You need to figure out if there is a fire, if there is something wrong, or if it's a false alarm. And this is what makes shame so complex is because the heart of shame tells this kind of, heart, kind of a half truth. Right? The first thing you might say that shame says is you're not okay. Something is wrong. And that's that's. I mean, if we're honest, that's pretty true. We're not okay. Something is wrong. 
That's why we, I mean, like Derek said earlier, one of the reasons we confess every Sunday is to not forget that. Well, our heart is right there with us sometimes. Yeah, you're not okay. Well, that's right enough, right? And that goes against this popular approach to shame, that we just need to love ourselves, warts and all, accept ourselves, just focus on our strengths, find friends who, who accept you as you are, you know, and, and never really challenge you, never make you feel uncomfortable, right? None of these is a final solution because if we're honest deep down, all of us have parts about ourselves that we, we don't think should be the way they are. We can't approve of them, they create problems for us. And if friends really love us, they're not going to just quite say, oh, it's fine, it's beautiful, it's good. No, we have parts of ourselves that need to change. We can't just love ourselves as we are. Right? Your heart says you're not all right, and the message of the Bible is that, that that's true, you're not. We haven't honored God. We haven't loved others as we love ourselves. We haven't treated other people the way that we want to be treated. Shame is right. We're not all right. But then our hearts say something else. It says, therefore, what we see with Adam and Eve, therefore, hide, hide. Conceal it. Cover yourself like Adam and Eve. Search for anything you can find. And we do. We've already gone over that. We search for anything to hide, to fill the void. Our heart might also say there's no hope for you. You're never going to feel truly okay. But the Christian story is that there is hope. right? And it's found not in anything of this world, but in God. And so we listen to our shame, not to follow it, not to just simply let us drive it. The diagnosis, you could say, is right, but the prognosis, the prescription, you could say, might be wrong. So we listen to our shame, but then we follow the path of Adam and Eve in the story. And what does that look like? You could kind of break it down into three things. First, you come out of hiding. Then you face the consequences, and then you're clothed in God's power and glory. So come out of hiding. Adam and Eve are hiding, and God says, where are you? I don't know. I mean, we could spend all day just saying that question over and over again to get at what in the world Adam and Eve were experiencing when he came down and said that. Not, where are you? Like, where are you? Come out so I can get you. And not, where are you? Like, I honestly don't know where you are. Will you please show yourself? God knows where they are. He knows what's happened. Why does he say it like that? Why does he say that? Where are you? Where are you? I don't know exactly how to say it to get at what he meant by it. But how does it hit you? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you right now? And they have to say, we're hiding. And maybe even then they begin to see, why are we hiding from God? So far, he's only ever loved us, only ever done good for us. Why are we hiding? It seems to be they realize they're hiding. He asks, where are you? He invites them to come out of hiding, to step into vulnerability. Vulnerability. We all are vulnerable, we just often try to deny it, but vulnerability parches our shame. If shame is like mold and it prefers the dark and dank area of, of a closed in, uh, inaccessible heart, vulnerability is like letting the light flood in, right? For shame that isn't our fault, vulnerability looks like transparency, just honest disclosure, sharing with others that we trust, what we've been through, how we're hurting, the alienation we've experienced, for shame that we do bear responsibility for, vulnerability is what we do every week here, confessing, laying bare our chest before God and to some degree before others and saying, owning what we've done wrong, taking responsibility for it. God's question, where are you? It's an invitation for them to step out into the truth, to accept that they are vulnerable and can't deny it but it's an invitation to trust him as well. 
it's the first step in healing the wound. But next, the consequences, right? When you step out into the light, it's going to sting. That mixes metaphors, but it's going to burn. God doesn't immediately strike down Adam and Eve, but he doesn't spare them of all consequences either, right? And breaking the grip of shame is going to sting. For some of us, it does mean confessing secret sins, things that we're hiding, getting them out in the open with somebody that you trust. That's the, one of the only ways to starve it out. For some of us, it means asking for help, just admitting that we don't have it all together. I don't always like to ask for help, y'all. I don't like to tell Derek and Trevor, here's what I'm preaching on. But then I, after talking to them, I'm like, oh, okay. I don't quite understand it like I thought I did. It's hard to ask for help. My sermons are always better when I do. We have to ask for help. For some of us, it means edging back into trusting relationships, letting people truly know us, which can be a huge risk for us. So take your time, but that's what we're aiming for. For others of us, you, you tell me what it will be, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve some discomfort. It's going to sting a little bit. Attending our shame, it's kind of like cleaning a wound, right? Whether you've inflicted the wound on yourself, the wound on yourself, or you've been wounded by others, and you, you, you've got to clean it. You've got to address it. You do it yourself, others help you, it's going to hurt a little bit to clean that stuff out. It's going to hurt to take the dressing off and put the new on. It's going to get sticky, it's going to get messy. It's going to require patience and endurance and waiting. But finally, not just step into vulnerability and face the consequences, face the sting, but receive new clothes of power and glory. Because after God doles out the consequences, he gives Adam and Eve these new coverings, right? That's how our text ended. He gives them garments of skin for clothes of fig leaves. Garments of skin, I mean, just think about them. They're much more practical. They're probably, they're certainly more durable, right? They fit them to do the more difficult work that God described. For Eve and Adam, maybe they were more form-fitting. I don't know. Maybe they accented their figure better. Who knows? But there's a, I was talking with Trevor this week. There's a, and if you go through the, uh, the seminar of the story, you'll, they'll, you'll always learn this, that, that, that there's, there's a theological significance, kind of a, a deeper significance to, to these garments of skin. Um, the Hebrew word for garment is the same one used to describe the investiture, uh, the investiture um, that Moses is commanded to provide the priests, that that Adam and Eve, when God clothes them in garments of skin, he's returning them, restoring them to the honor of their office as priests of his creation temple. Yes, there are consequences for Adam and Eve. Yes, there, there is a new kind of relationship with God. They don't get to live in the garden anymore. Things change. But God doesn't just wag his finger at them. He doesn't cut them down like he could. He actually goes to restoring them to the honor of their office. But that, that raises some questions that leaves some unresolved tensions because, you know, if you read Adam and Eve and how they respond to God, they don't really own what they've done. You never see them say, like, I'm sorry. They say that what they've done and then they blame it on somebody else, right? So we don't see like a ton of contrition. 
like heartfelt contrition in Adam and Eve. And there's this question of justice, right? God could have taken them out immediately and probably was right to, but he doesn't. Gives them a long, long life. And then he goes beyond that and he restores their office. There's this question of, and he trades fig skins for garments of skin, and those are not, or fig leaves for garments of skin. That's not like a fair trade, right? And then we have shame ruling over humanity still. And so all these unanswered questions, and what we begin to see as you read the rest of the story of the Bible is that God is not finished with the serpent or with shame. He's going to resolve all the tension. We see it in, in 3.15, right, where he says to the serpent, we already see him kind of shaming shame, shaming the one who brought Adam and Eve into shame as he says to the serpent that the seed of woman shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you wonder how God said that and what was in, what was behind those words. You know, you're about to have a conflict with somebody, get into a fight with somebody and you say, look, you're going to, you're going to hurt me, but I'm going to, I'm going to deal the head wound. There's a confidence. There's a kind of righteous scorn born of love for his people and his creation that what you have brought into the world, I will snuff out. I will eradicate. And then Christ, that's exactly what we see him doing, right? He takes shame and he kind of shames shame. He just casts it into this vaporizing light and Christ's death and resurrection and God's death and resurrection, that's exactly what, what happens, is that Jesus takes everything the serpent can throw, all the temptation, all the shame, he hangs naked on a cross, and he never hides, he never withdraws, never pulls back from it, never reaches for anything to hide. The shame of nakedness, the shame of death, our shame, he takes it all, and it crushes him, it kills him, but Jesus rises from the dead, and that means shame and death can't hold him. And so Jesus makes a fool of the serpent and of shame by rendering shame the healing agent of the world. He shames shame. He mocks shame. And I'll tell you, there is an impulse in all of us when we feel shame to put down other people, right? To mock them. And I want to say that God doesn't totally dismiss or invalidate that impulse. There is a mocking impulse we should have, but it's at evil. It's at shame. It's at the serpent. Hate the shame, hate the evil as God does. See it eradicated in Jesus. We carry shame like a wound. Right? We're infected with shame like a virus. Jesus opens up his body and soul to all the viral destruction that we have in us and around us. And his body somehow, by the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, produces these new kind of antibodies that can't be conquered by evil, can't be conquered by shame. He's immune to it and connected to him, united to him. We are too. We have the same spirit, the same kind of new blood, the same life coursing through us that courses through Jesus. And it's not just that we're immune or not just that we're restored, but we are clothed in his power and glory. The gospel isn't just God cleans you or takes us back to the garden, right? And cleans the slate and all that dirty stuff. And now you've got a new chance, a new opportunity. And now take advantage of it. Don't screw it up because then the shame would be even worse. The gospel is that God cleans the slate and then writes Christ's story on the slate in our place as our story. 
We get Christ's righteousness. We get his power. We get his beauty. We get his glory. There's nothing left for us to do. There's no proof left to provide. Christ is our proof. Do you see? That's the gospel for shame. Not just shame off of you, but glory and power and beauty of Jesus upon you forever. And it can't be taken away. What can man do to you? What can he do to me? It doesn't mean that we don't experience weakness still and hurt and unrequited longings and all those can still be taken up by this shame and they're frustrating to us, but it means we have hope because if Jesus can transform the scars of his shame and torture, of which there were many, into a badge of honor and glory and power, then he can do the same for our scars, for all that scars us. And here's kind of the key where we'll end is that the gospel, as we see, you can't take your eyes off of yourself. You can't truly love, truly delight, truly wonder, truly revel in mystery if you're plagued by shame because you've always got to have an eye back on yourself. What are they thinking of me? What are they seeing in me that they may not want to see? But if, if, if the gospel is true, we can finally actually take our eyes kind of off of ourselves. We can be very self-aware, but never self-conscious. We can be transparent just to let people see who we are without worrying so much about what they're going to think about us. It makes the possibility of love actual. We can truly love because our eyes are no longer on ourselves. Right? Just imagine a world where shame no longer drives you. I'm not even sure what that would look like. I'm not even sure if, if I if I. Part of, every part of me wants that because it feels like a risk to me even now as I say it. Not to be driven by shame. I might lose a lot of my ambition. Things might change for me. Body, my body might change, whatever. it might. I'm not sure what would happen, but there would be freedom, a new kind of freedom. Not just to sit and rest in Jesus, but to love others, to come into relationships, not looking to receive, but actually having something to give. I've been so honored and accepted that I'm delighting and eager to show that kind of honor and acceptance to others. I've been so seen in who I am in Jesus that I have, I'm eager to see others as they are and to bring healing to their shame by my own love as I've been loved by Christ. That's a beautiful life. Right? It's not about showing up and flaunting your vulnerability. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, I'm coming to you and saying, where are you? As God said to Adam, you're saying, here I am. And you're coming to me saying, where are you? And I'm saying, here I am. And there's a dance between us of where are you? Here I am. Where are you? Here I am. And it's messy and it stings and it's not easy. And it takes patience and it takes skill, all that stuff. But that's what we have to aim for. That's what's been done for us. And that's what will make us a beautiful people to the outside. To come into a community and know and see just, just in the air, there's something here. I might, I could be known here and loved. That would be a powerful thing. So at this table, as we come to the table, this is where God, your father, delights to honor you by like a good, like a good dad, you know, after you graduate or you have like a, you know, and he says, hey, I'm going to take you to dinner. Dad doesn't say, all right, we'll split it. Like you, you pay for half and I'll pay for half. No, like, a, you know, he pays for the whole thing. Like he sets the table, he provides the space, he pays for it all, and it costs him dearly, right? And again, he doesn't tell you it costs him dearly to like shame you, make you feel bad. 
he tells you, it costs him dearly to let him let you know just how much he loves you. That you really don't have to, you don't even have to offer gratitude as payment, although gratitude would be fitting. It requires nothing in return. That's why he wants you to know he's covered the whole cost, the whole thing. Right? So he's prepared the table, he's covered the cost, he's got you a place. He wants you to know all that, not to shame you, but to convince you that you're known and fully loved and that his love is free. As we saw, God has cleaned us in our baptism. Have you been baptized? You're ready to go. And now at this table, he says, where are you? Come on. Come on. Get up here. That's what he says. All right. Now, if you're hiding, if you're resisting, well, maybe you know, if you're holding on to things that stain you and there's nothing in you that wants freedom from those stains, God is coming here saying, I'm going I'm to read, I'm going to use this table to purify you of everything that stains you, to work in you holiness. And if there's nothing in you, those things in your life, that part of you, it's always clinging to, but there's nothing in you that wants freedom from that. You need to think about, are you telling the truth about what you're after when you come to the table? There's nothing in you that wants that freedom. But there's, if there's even the inkling of a desire for freedom from the things that beset you, from the shame that plagues you, then God is saying, where are you and why aren't you here? Okay, so get here, be here. All right, let's pray.